everyone for having me um, here. Uh, so today is Halloween, and tomorrow, that means tomorrow is All Saints Day. So, um, uh, like, so saints, another word for saints in English is hallowed, uh, or the hallows. And so the reason why it's called Halloween is because it, it happens on the evening before All Hallows Day. And so um, uh, that's why we do it and take the and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Uh, my kids are going um, trick-or-treating later today. Um, I think there's still a debate whether Spider-Man or Captain America is going to make an appearance. Um, uh, but it's also really nostalgic for me because one of the things when I was here, so I was, I was here for about uh, 10 or so years, one of the things that we used to do is on the weekend of, you know, closest to um, All Saints Day, what we would do is we would actually preach um, an, a, a sermon from church history because the whole point of All Saints Day is really about celebrating great heroes of the past. Um, and uh, so what I would do, because I'm a church historian, I have a fair, fair few uh, old sermons that I've listened to, I would, I would pull one out. So today's sermon is like taking the idea of a rerun to a whole number <laughs> okay? Like this is a rerun anyway, because I actually preached this in 2013 here, okay? So that's a rerun. Yeah, I'm sorry, Ed, you've heard it all before. <laughs> Don't worry about taking notes, Anne. <laughs> yeah. No, just look up whatever you had in 2013. It's pretty much the same. Um, uh, but as well as that, it's like another rerun, because like this sermon was originally preached 1,600 years ago. So, yeah. Um, uh, it was preached by a guy called John Chrysostom, um, who was a great preacher from Antioch. He was born in uh, 347 AD. Um, and Chrysostom is actually his nickname. Um, in Greek, Chrysostomos means um, uh, golden mount, which tells you his reputation as a preacher. He, he was very eloquent, very charming, um, and, and uh, the other thing about his sermons is they're all written. They're extemporaneous, which means he just got up, was given a, certain, a passage, and then he just ripped it off the top of it. And he, his knowledge of the Bible is just incredible. So he was just flying from Bible passage to Bible passage wherever the Spirit led him. It's amazing preaching, and I can't do it. Um, but I've got his scripts, so that'll count. Um, uh, uh, the other thing about him was that he was really passionate and uh, quite fiery. So one of the things that would happen is because he was such a good speaker, the congregation would actually clap. Like they clapped, very good job. And he had to get next to yeah. Um, uh, and the thing was that he started to yell at them. And this is in the transcripts we have, where he goes, stop just clapping and, and applauding me. Go and do what I actually tell you to do. And it's a better thing than the clapping. So um, uh, Chrysostom was really passionate also about social justice and defending the poor. And um, he consistently criticised the Byzantine emperor and empress for their like, extravagant lifestyle and how they were living this opulent, rich life while there's all these poor people in the, in the community. And so they came up with a plan to shut him up. What they did is they bought him off. They gave him the role as patriarch of Constantinople. And they figured once he was in the system, 
he's like, you know, shut up and come into line. Instead, what he did is he got up and he said, well, I'd like to thank the emperor and the empress for giving me this role as patriarch, tremendous honor, and now I'm just going to continue complaining, so now I've got a bigger platform to actually do it. Um, uh, uh, things kind of went a little bit awry for him when in the middle of one of his extemporaneous sermons, the extemporaneous rhythmic got a little too far and he referred to the Empress as Jezebel. <laughs> she didn't like that. She didn't like that. And so she subsequently exiled him out into the desert and he died um, uh, uh, in 407 AD. But his sermons were really good and so lots and lots and lots of people, uh, uh, lots of them were, were written down as he was doing it, kind of like a shorthand, Greek equivalent of that, and we have them today. Okay. Um, uh, uh, the sermon, because it is that kind of riffing kind of thing, it can come across as a bit unstructured at points, but you'll be able to get used to it. It is a different sermon style to probably what you're used to. Um, but one other thing I will say is, this is a translation from the Greek, I'm scaring you that, um, uh, uh, it's a translation from the Greek, and I've updated a little bit of the language, but I haven't updated it as much as you think I will. When you hear some of the stuff that he says, it's pretty much exactly the kind of stuff that like, he actually said. Yeah, he says some stuff that you might find surprising. Now, if you um, uh, want to um, uh, follow along with the passage, it's pretty short. It's um, Romans 6, 3 to 4. You don't need it up on a screen or anything like that. If you want, you can pull that down. But I'll read it to you and we've done two sections. So um, it's Romans 6, 3 to 4. Um, he preached this in Constantinople when he was the patriarch. So it's part of the wider context of like the empress being physically at him and things like that. So Romans 6, 3 to 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's the passage. Here we go. Here it goes. This is Revelation 10. What does being baptised into his death mean? It's about our dying as he did. For baptism is the cross. What the cross then and burial is to Christ, then our baptism has been to us, even if it's, if it's a little bit different. For he died himself and was buried in the flesh, and we have died and been buried to the power of sin. As then Christ's death for our sin is real, so our death from our sins is real. But if it is real, what's our part? What, what must we contribute here? And so Paul proceeds, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Here, begins along with our duty to treat death subject of the resurrection. In what way? Well, Paul is saying, do you believe that Christ died and that he was raised again? Well, if you do believe that, 
And don't just believe it for him. Believe it for yourself too. For one is just like the other, since both the cross and burial are yours. For if you shared in death and burial through baptism, how much more will you share in resurrection and life? But now, the biggest problem is done away with. You sin. So it's not right to doubt any longer that the lesser problem, death, is done away with too. Now, having, having said before us the resurrection comes, Paul leaves that for now to his readers to think about a little later. We'll get back to it. Instead, he starts a new conversation about the present life, about a change of habits. Now, so, when those that sleep around start to restrain themselves, when the jealous and the greedy become merciful, when the harsh become subdued, even here, in those things, a resurrection takes place. It's like a prelude to the resurrection that is is it a resurrection? Well, because sin is killed. Sin is killed. And righteousness has risen again. And the old life has been made to vanish. And the new and angelic one is now being
sins make us feel so tired. They make us feel so old. Hebrews 8 says, What is old, obsolete, and outdated will soon disappear. And if you think that your body wears out over years of living simply and unhealthily, how much more do you think your soul wears out? Over time, our soul withers. We start stumbling around, weakness and weighed down by all our sin. People like this start mumbling away like old men who've gone crazy. We become stiff, like people with arthritis. We become forgetful and we become easy prey to the devil. sinner receives even a small shock, well they often fall straight away and are undone. For they can't see clearly anymore. They struggle to hear what people are really even saying. They, they stop speaking clearly. They become short of breath. Indeed, it's like the words become kind of like phlegm and they're stuck right at the back of your throat and then you just spit them out everywhere. And some of those words, those cruel words, they're like phlegm and they fall on your hands and then all they can do is just smear them over their own faces. Now, hey, uh, that analogy might gross you out a bit. But, shouldn't the harsh words we say in the reality of those harsh words, shouldn't they grow you out more? Because if something like phlegm, which is from the body, disgusts you, how much more should harsh words, which are like the phlegm of the soul? Let's go back to the idea of youthfulness and the youthfulness of righteousness and the agedness, the oldness of sinfulness. Let's think of the prodigal son story. He wasted all his share and was reduced to the greatest poverty, but when he was willing, he was suddenly made young again by his decision alone, by his decision to change. For as soon as he had said, I'll return to my father. This one sentence carried him all his future blessings. And of course, on one level, it wasn't just that one sentence, but the deed that went with that one sentence. For he didn't say, hmm, let me go back and then 
decided it. No, no, no. No, he said, let me go back. And then he did. He went back all the way to his father. So let us do that too. <coughs> and even if we have been carried far off out to sea, to far away nations, let us get up and go to our Father's house and not stay lingering because of the length of the journey. But if we are <laughs> the way back very speaking. Only let us leave this strange and foreign land. For this is what sin is. And start drawing us back to our Father's house. Let us, let us leave it there. That we may speedily return to the house of our Father. For our Father has a natural yearning towards us. And he will honour us if we are challenged. No less than those that are righteous, if we change, but even more, just as the Father shows the Son with great honour, for he has great pleasure himself at receiving back his Son. Now, maybe you're thinking, how do I get back to him? Well, make a start and hold still. Start with one day, then move to two days, and you'll find kicking off the third day actually a little easier. And after three days, you'll add 10, then 20, then 100, then your whole life, because that's the power of habit. But the further you travel on, the easier you'll see the way to be, and you'll stand on the summit itself. From that summit, what wonders you'll enjoy. That's what it was like when the prodigal came back. There were flutes and harps and dances and feasts and parties. And the father, who could have asked his son to reclaim all the money he'd thrown away with nothing of the sort, but looked upon him as restored. Righteous. to tell the poor you're not off, even to mention the mistakes of the past. Instead, he threw himself upon his son and kissed him and threw a robe upon him and placed on him a bundle of So let us, if we have such examples before us, let us be of good cheer and stay away from despair. For God isn't satisfied with being called our Father. He wants to be called our Father. He doesn't want slaves. He wants sons and daughters. 
this thing is why he did all that he has done. Romans 8 says that he did not spare his own son so that we might receive the adoption of sons and daughters. That we might love him. Not just as a master, but as a father. And if God has accomplished all this, don't you think he's the right glorious that shouts at everything and doesn't need us to do anything to accomplish it? Think of what Jesus says to Peter in John 21. Do you love me more than all of these? That, really, is all that Jesus wants from us. He wants us to love him above everything else, just as he loved us above everything else. That's why, Jesus says in Matthew 10, those that love their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He calls us to value those things that matter to us most, even our very soul, as a second priority compared to him. Because think about it. When you don't love someone, it doesn't matter if they're a king. But if you do love them, it doesn't matter if they're a beggar or a king in your eyes. How much did Christ love them? That he thinks it's glorious to suffer a love for little old you and me. And of course, we suffer for him sometimes. But whatever we suffer somebody has slandered you. Maybe it was true. Maybe it was false. Why? Don't you realise there will be a great crown upon your head if you bear it meekly? In, in that sense, they're actually doing you a favour because in Matthew 5 it says, rejoice when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you because great is your reward in heaven. So all this is why Paul said in Romans 
Just as those who are earnest for God gain even from the evil that tries to bother us, the opposite is true for those who are indifferent to Him. They lose from the good that God tries to bless them with. But what did Judas profit, tell me, by being with Christ? What did he gain? Being in Eden didn't help Adam. Having Moses didn't save the Israelites from the wilderness. So we mustn't be indifferent to God. Let's leave everything and focus on that one point, Jesus, so we can use our resources correctly. And if we do all this, not even the devil himself will ever get the better of us. Now he may try to bother us, but if we are earnest for God, the devil's attacks will only make us stronger. How will they make us stronger? Because they will make us more watchful. This is the way Paul fires up the Ephesians, describing Satan's fierceness. Yet here we are, and we sleep and snore, though we are fighting with so crafty an enemy. If you found a snake nestling in your bed, <laughs> would you just relax? No, you would make quite a fuss to kill it. But when the devil nestles in your souls, we figure we're not in any danger and lie back and doze. What's with that? It's because we don't see him with these eyes, with our physical eyes. But it's precisely because we don't see him that way that should rouse us even more and sober us up. After all, when you can see your enemy, it's easy to be on guard. When you can't see, Chill. 
what he's trying to do is give you a whole, like, it's almost like there's lots of little mini sermons, and what you've got to do is just pick one. Right? So maybe for you, it's the thing about um, uh, changing your habits. You know, just one, start with one day and, and that kind of thing. Maybe it's the Lenny's word thing, you know, like not um, uh, uh, being aggressive with your words. Maybe it's the thing about um, uh, that all God wants you to do is come back to him. Maybe it's the love of the Father. Maybe it's the devil's um, uh, tricks hiding in your bed. Whatever it is for you, maybe just spend a few minutes just kind of thinking back and maybe praying and asking the Spirit, what out of that sermon did you want me to catch today? Okay, that might cover. Okay. Well, thanks very much for having me over. Well, that's really good, man, because now I have to say, don't just clap, you have to actually do it. You know? So yeah, that's good.